I'm David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. And Tim is still in Scotland. He's ghosting us for his wife. I know, right? And he's honestly, what he's really probably doing is they're wandering the highlands and he's he's wearing a kilt and playing the bagpipes. And he, my theory is that while he was there, he took up bagpiping. And of course. The, but the problem How is can he's... can you not? As well, one as does. As one does. Yeah, right. But he is not quite to the level that he wants to be at yet. So he has embedded himself in a troop of Scottish, like Scottish bagpipers. Like a traveling Scottish bagpiping band? Uh, well, I, I wasn't thinking band so much as like a troop, Heidi, a troop. And that's a much more British word. Not right. that Scotland is British. I know you people and you hate that, but it is just the British Isles. And, and here's the catch though. They're bagpipers, but their day job is that they're a sh- traveling Shakespearean troop. Of so course. he has embedded himself in this group and is making sure that he knows the bagpipes as well as he wants to when he returns home, while also getting to play King Lear. And meanwhile, Galen... And Macbeth. It, and yeah, exactly, yeah. At the, same, at the same time, it's a it's an adaption where King Lear and Macbeth have been put together in one play. It's, it's, a, it's a doubly it's dark. It's a little weird, but it works. Right, yeah. The right. blasted and the, and But they took out the weird sisters, which, you know, that's the, the extra weird. And then Galen, meanwhile, being sweet and kind and industrious has set up shop as the as a therapist as a counselor for all of these people who have spent their lives traveling the scottish highlands performing as very dark shakespearean characters and playing the bagpipes and wearing kilts so you can imagine when you combine those three things together how much help they need and so galen is is uh living her best life as well so this is the tim and galen adventure that i have in my mind i love it I think it works. And if it isn't real life, it needs to be somebody's novel project. Right, exactly. And also, um, I might have just... um, I might have just... um, Drawn heavily from Emily Mandel's Station Eleven. Yeah, yeah. I guess I kind of did, which I've not read. So Mm -hmm. only from the impressions. But that is a book Tim loves. So, Mm -hmm. Well, we are here to discuss the final chapters of Loris. Tim, well... We think he's going to be back next week to do the Q&A with us. But then again, we thought he was going to be back for this week, too. We did. And we thought There was that. a, we a miscommunication wrong. somewhere along the way. I, I'm gonna, I want to rephrase that. There was a misinterpretation, I think, on our part. I don't want it to sound like I'm throwing Tim we under the bus. We just are projecting how much we want him back because we love him so, so dearly. It's right. It's not the same. So we're going to talk about the end of Loris. And then next week, we're going to do the Q&A. So, Heidi, are you... You good to do the, uh, to start the thread? Yeah, you got it. I All am right, on so it. after this episode, when we record this, today's Friday, September 2nd. This episode's going to go on Monday, which would be the 4th or 5th, I believe, on Labor Day. So Heidi's going to put that that thread up. You can post your questions there. You can also email them to us, of course, uh, david at goldberrybooks.com, or you can post them in the comment section on Substack where this episode gets posted. So that's closereads.substack.com if you would like to check that out, which you know gives me a chance to also just mention, don't forget about Substack where we have all kinds of great bonus content. We've got written content. We also have the bonus episodes on... E- bonus? Did I say bonus? The bonus Dead. episodes on East of Eden. I think my brain was already to East as I was finishing yeah. the word bonus. Yeah. So there's, there's just lots of great content over there. And plus you get to support the show and help us pay some people and keep things going. So uh, to everybody who's already doing that, thank you so much for subscribing and 
uh, for listening and being a part of the community. What What's going on in your life, Heidi? Well, school starts on Tuesday. And so this is a big week. I am doing lots of school prep and trying to get as much written as I can on my writing projects before school starts. And I have three big classes to plan for. So pray for me. <laughs> what are you most excited about teaching this? This I don't mean like what class or what kids, but just is there something, a subject that either because you haven't covered it in a while or just for whatever reason you're you're pumped to to do. Yeah. So I'm teaching an early moderns class for a combined 11th and 12th grade class at the school I teach. And Mm -hmm. I have never taught early moderns before. And so I, I was, I've been a bit intimidated by it. And frankly, it's the era of history that I know the least about and didn't know I loved until this summer. And so as I've been doing my research, I'm just really fallen in love with it. I mean, everybody, everybody who's paying attention knows how much I love the medieval world. And so, um, I, I just have like a very, like a, a grief response to the transition between the medieval world to the modern world. Uh, but I'm putting all these pieces together as I'm doing research for this class and preparing for it that uh, are absolutely fascinating to me. Um, And it's so anyway, I'm really excited to teach it because I now have a newfound love, not necessarily out of agreement with the changes, but just a deeper understanding of it. And um, I guess an excitement to hear from the students and to be able to invest in, in them. So and my son is in that class. Nice. And I, you know, so it's just special to me. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm really excited about that. But like I said, I haven't done it before. So I've, I remain intimidated. <laughs> um, well, you also, in addition to teaching, well, children the age of, of your kids yeah. are also doing this atrium program for Cersei, mm-hmm. right? And I want to shout yes. them out because um, you're doing that and we want to get as many people in that. And that is as possible. That starts soon, right? So can you yeah, just kind of give the summary on, on that? Tuesday. Yeah. And I almost said that when you asked me what I'm most excited about. I'm actually super excited about everything I'm teaching this year. I'm teaching a 10th grade ancients class. I love teaching the ancients. There's nothing more fun than teaching Homer, especially to kids who think it's going to be boring. And then you see this like light of joy and illumination, like mm cover them as they understand (laughs) that they really get it. Um, And uh, so I love teaching that. And I'm teaching this early moderns class. And I'm also teaching an atrium course uh, for adults, which is just so fun for me uh, to be able to engage in here from uh, from adults, from my peers. So I'm teaching this class. It starts on on Tuesday and it'll be the first and third Tuesdays of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And because it's online, there's plenty of room. Um, I have a full class, but the more the merrier. So if anybody's interested, go to searcyinstitute.org and search for the atrium program and join me because it's a live class. I'll be interacting and having all these discussions on three plays. Uh, We'll spend a couple months reading and discussing Much Ado About Nothing and then Richard II and then Macbeth. And then we'll also do some sonnets along the way, the Elizabethan worldview, late medieval kind of way of thinking, uh, mm. and some lots of literary and historical context. And it's all a discussion-based class. So yes. I'm super excited about that one as well. So you can go to circeinstitute.org slash atrium 
so C-I-R-C-E, institute.org slash atrium. Um, their tagline is, you explore the foundations of classical education as part of a dynamic community. And I know that everybody who leads an atrium program takes that like dynamic online community part of it seriously. And they have mm-hmm. like, I just want to mention some of these other ones as well. There's obviously yours, which you said is on Shakespeare and sounds amazing, but they also have... Um, Matthew Bianco, our old friend, is doing one on Plato's dialogues. So if you know Matthew, like he wrote his PhD thesis on Plato. He's like obsessed, maybe to an unhealthy level. I'm just kidding. Um, he really knows his Plato, he, he, I'll tell you he that. He knows his stuff is, is what I was trying to say. And it just came out weird. Um, then um, <laughs> another one of our friends is, is David Hicks. And he wrote the book Norms and Nobility, which is one of like the essential books on education. And Tanya Roselle is going to do an atrium on that. And then another of our friends, Kristen Rudd, she's doing one on the Divine Comedy. So the four courses that are, you could do Shakespeare, Norms and, Novi- Norms and Nobility, Plato's Dialogues, or the Divine Comedy. And there's a couple of live webinars every month, as, he- as uh, Heidi said. And there's a forum and places to have conversation. And yeah, those, you, uh, Heidi's, you, you said it starts on Tuesday. Mine but, starts on Tuesday. So what if yes. someone had to sign up a little late because they just heard oh, this? Oh, it's no problem. No problem at all. And we record, I'll I'll be recording everything. And uh, you know, we're all adult humans with busy lives. We get it. So yeah. there's there's <laughs> no homework other than reading or watching Shakespeare. There's mm. no written assignments. It's really just for uh community reflection and some help maybe teaching understanding and loving Shakespeare or you know if you did the divine comedy or whatever mm-hmm. so anyway everything is recorded and posted for people to watch later although we do I prefer it when people yeah, are when people on are. the live yeah. classes because it's a discussion-based class I want to hear from everybody but for those who have to miss one or two or sign up late or whatever um, we have everything recorded so you can catch up so it's no problem and we do have I have several close readers who are registered for the class and so I'm getting a chance to get to know some of the people in our close reads community over there which you know forms bonds and that's always fun so come on down we didn't even plan to do this little plug no we didn't so, no yeah so yeah, there's that. I think I think one of the other ones. Also, I think Tanya Roselle's on norms and ability also starts in September, maybe like September thirteenth. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in that's going to be more on like pedagogy and classical pedagogy and you know how to how to teach more generally as opposed to more specific literature. So if you're interested in that one as well, I just want to make sure that you hear about that as well. Um, okay, well let's talk about Loris Heidi because can't wait. It's the the end of Loris, um, the the final chapters. And it, I, I was trying to figure out exactly which direction to start with for a question. Because I could just say, okay, we know you love this book to, to take, to borrow um, Tim's parlance. This is one of your heart books, I think. For um, sure. So I could just say, well, how does the ending play into that? I feel like that's what we're going to talk about, though, a lot anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I necessarily even need to ask that question. So... I will force it into <laughs> yeah. the conversation. So. Right. I knew you would just be rude and just kind of I'll just you know, lodge it yeah. right in there Yeah, somehow. exactly. Like, whether we ask it, it's going to happen. Well, when you get to the end of a hard book, how can you not say, well, kind of just express that, that the reasons for your affection for something like this. But here's where I want to start because it's something that we've talked about and I want to see if we can try to bring some of this a little, a little full circle. We've talked about the idea of like, you know, we both kind of think the, the term worldview is a we're conflicted about that term, but we've also been talking about the way the medievals and particularly this like 
Russian Orthodox medieval peoples looked at the world. So literally had a worldview. And I'm curious how this ending fits into what we've been discussing about the medieval worldview. And in a way, I could just say, okay, just start talking, like give us a lecture on tying that ties all this together. Um, so I'm just going to do that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. So I texted you yesterday and said, what did you think of the ending? Um, <laughs> That's what you did. Yeah. Yeah. And your, your response, I think. It was brief. I was busy. That, I didn't really get to express what I really think of it in depth. Oh, it was so. fine. But um, you said you said it was a tad bit predictable, but maybe that's the point. Um, and I think that that is a very well said kind of dis- uh, response mm. to may- maybe stripped of the emotion or whatever. But yeah, it's just a quick terms, text response. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Um, but. It's a good description of the the way that the medievals told stories, right? It's a tad bit predictable, and that's the point, mm. right? Because um, in what's so great, what this is what I tell my students all the time when we're reading medieval literature, spoilers don't matter, right? And the <laughs> mythology right, right. is the same way, right? If you know that at the end of the Iliad, Hector is going to be excuse Hector is going to be dead and Achilles is going to be dragging his body three times around Troy. If you know that at the end of Hamlet, the stage is littered with dead bodies, that's okay. Like there's this sense of, of that, a medieval story, an old story, a primeval story, a story that is um, intended to explore the human condition at a fundamental level doesn't need to be surprising. It needs, but it needs to, to be human, right? It needs, it needs to express the fundamental human condition and it doesn't need to necessarily be a surprise to be great. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that at the end of Loris, what we have is, is that hmm. whether you saw it coming or not, I, I asked an, a friend of mine, what did you, you know, who said at the end of Loris, I kind of felt like the end, the first time I read it, I felt like the ending was a bit contrived, but the second time I read it, I realized there's just this unbelievable depth of mercy and justice and and beauty that is expressed in in a full circle story. Mm, yeah. That that begins with a tragedy that's fully redeemed at the end. And 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 the the sense of justness and rightness and completion that comes from that uh is is part of hagiography, certainly part of medieval storytelling, yes. And then also, I think part at, at a much deeper level, it's expressive of our Christian eschatological hope, which is at the end of all things, at the end of days, when all things are made new, it will feel like this. Mm-hmm. And And even if that doesn't happen here, he's expressing that Christian eschatology. Mm-hmm through this story. Mm. So for the, I'll just quickly summarize for those who haven't read it in a little while. I mean, you probably remember it's kind of the point of the book, but after Ambrosio is, is killed and he goes to Jerusalem, it jumps ahead and he, um, Arseny, Ustin, whatever name we're going to call him, he goes and lives 
in the he goes home, he lives in the village for a while, then he goes to the monastery. And then after he goes to the monastery where he becomes Loris, he then goes and lives in a cave in the in the woods, St. Francis style, I guess. And while he's there, a young woman comes to him who is pregnant. She says, save the day, basically. She asks for his help. And at first she asks for an abortion. Right. For help with an abortion. Right. And he refuses. Right. And then she ends up basically being forced to stay there because the village people are going to, you know, throw her on a scale and see if she's a witch and to borrow the Monty Python parlance of this. Right. And then they try to burn her down, right, burn her yeah, house down. Exactly. They, she turned me into a newt. <laughs> I, got, I got better. Um, and and uh, then they come after her, though, to, to his cave. And then in a moment of panic, she points to Loris saying, "This he's the father. And they all are like, oh, how the mighty fall, right? And they, they think, you know, oh, this is sad because he's had such a great fall. We thought he was such a great guy. Of course, he wasn't the father, but he didn't deny it to protect her and for various reasons. And then... Um, a plague basically comes upon. Well, not a plague. I mean, um, a, frost. a frost comes. Yeah, and then the the man who is the father, his wife gets sick, and then in the end confesses. And then Loris. Um, that, I mean, that's kind of how that wraps up with with her. And he is vindicated. Yeah, he is right in the yeah, end. They but know after that he's not his death, right. It he doesn't know his own vindication. It happens after his death, right. and his final. His final will and last will and testament is that he will not be buried, which is a to the moderns that doesn't make that big of a difference. To the medievals, that's well, a very big deal. It gets brought up over and over and over again in the yes. book about what so cemetery he, you're buried in. Yes. He does not want to be buried. And so the closing scene of the book is his body essentially being both desecrated and elevated in the same moment. And and then and and Rob, is in it the, the perfect, grass that kind of like grows up around? Yeah, it he's and... floating. There be this. It, he's floating like a saint, mm-hmm. right? Um, and upon his body is, um, and then this foreign um, man, Siegfried says, "You Russians are." This is the most Russian moment, right? <laughs> when he says, "You That's Russians right. are." crazy people, right? You guys are, um, what is the matter with you people? You Russians, you are massive contradictions. You, you elevate and desecrate a man all in the same moment who is a saint and has prayed for you. Um, and, and Averki, the blacksmith, Averki says, you have already been in our land for a year and eight months, but have not understood a thing about it. And do you yourselves understand it? Asked, uh, asks Siegfried, do we? The blacksmith mulls that over and looks at Siegfried. Of course, we too do not understand. Mm. Period, mic drop, end of the novel. I, I was, the one thing I didn't say in my text is the book was always going to end with a new Ustina character. Like, you just mm-hmm. kind of, it kind of had to. But that ending, that like coda on it is so perfect. It, mm-hmm. it, I think it, 
if he if they had not added that little line there about mystery and not understanding, could have still worked. But when you kind of get him vindicated after his death, it feels a little bit not sentimental, but almost like too a little contrived, a little contrived. as yeah. as my friend said. But yeah. then at the end, when they drop this thing about mystery and not understanding it, like just leaving it on that sort of moment of that like intellectual stasis there, that's that's perfect. You know, that to mm-hmm. me is. You know, that's when you know you're in the hands of someone who is competent. But let me ask you a question, because one of the reasons I wanted to do that summary is because it shows that we have this new Ustina character, right? This new young woman who comes to him. And he protects her and watches over her and takes care of her and takes care of the child. And in fact, when he dies, he's holding... This baby is the night of the baby's birth. Yes, which of course you know this is all this all the 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 cyclical imagery here going back to earlier in the book is is really um, beautiful. But I was thinking about how the does it matter that the book does not tell us, strictly speaking, whether Loris Arseny whatever is successful in the quest he has been living for the last decades of his life. In other words, it doesn't talk a lot about whether he was successful in saving Ustina, which mm-hmm. was his whole... His lifelong, his lifelong quest. quest. So where, why does the book begin to deviate from that thematically? Why does, it, why does he seem less obsessed with it? What does it mean, in your opinion, that is the case? Mm. Yeah, I think... I think his his um I think he remains as set on his quest at the end as he does okay. at any other moment in his journey but I I think that Vodolajkin could not answer that question for us because one of one of the questions of the book that is raised is 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 Loris Arseny, whoever he is at any given moment, whatever he is named at any given moment, is he on the right path? And different people are going to answer that differently. I I would certainly say yes, but there are many from either secular or other faith traditions who would say he missed it, right? He, he didn't do the right thing. So if Vodolajkin, no matter what a good person he became, there was something he missed. and. And so Vodolajkin can't tie that off for us. It it remained a question of faith for Arseni, Ustin, Ambrosi, Loris. Mm-hmm. And it remains a question in the book. Um, and it has to remain a question in the book. If not, it becomes, as you said, sentimentalized and reduced. Mm-hmm. So... So I think for those of the readers who got to the end of the book and are like, yeah, I became a better man, but that was... What's up? Are she still right? stuck in this? Yeah. Vodolajkin can't insert himself into that and tell us what to think about mm-hmm. that. He, he, he raises the question and he leaves it to us as the readers um, to accept or not the terms of the novel. And, and so it remains a question of faith within the novel and for those of us who are outside of it, reading it. Okay. But if you don't, I mean, does that mean that, I don't, I don't know how to ask this or even what I'm trying to say. 
What um, if you don't, if you don't accept though, the theological terms or principles or ideas or whatever that Vadalashkin accepts that undergird his story, then how do you? What kind of meaning or how do you? interact with Mm -hmm. this book in the end then because it's one thing to say okay we're going to take the book on face value but when it leaves such a big question open-ended even at face value like and and you're saying it becomes a matter of faith not just in the terms of the book but for the reader then the nature of the reader's faith is being in in um is being interacted with and so how do you read this then if if you don't accept his terms and disagree with him theologically, does that mean that the book is not something like, okay, yeah, I had a great time reading it or whatever, but in the end, I don't, I don't have, it doesn't have anything for me really because, okay, I'm using, and I'm using stark terms here. Right, Um, sure. But yeah, do you you understand what I'm asking? Right, yeah. No, I think you're, you're raising a really important question. And I, I had the same question, say when we read um, Brideshead Revisited, um, when I first read it, mm. thinking to myself, how would someone who's not a Christian read this yeah. book? Like, yeah. why, how, how would you interact with Or like the power and the glory you, or, exactly, you know, yes, the end of the affair, or I could just keep listing Graham Greene novels. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The book <clears throat> becomes a dividing line, a mirror into the reader's faith <clears throat> and assumptions about the world. And those that... And all of us have some kind of framework of faith, whether we are whether we are religious or not. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, and and this book, just like you know those Graham Greene novels that were, are just like the great Catholic novels of the 20th century, uh, they are accepted as brilliant novels by the secular academy mm-hmm. and by secular readers. And so there is certain, but I think that's because. The book frankly wrestles with the question of faith and leaves faith exactly what it is, which is a mystery. Mm, yeah. And and I think that's what makes this book so great. So it, you could read it as, let's say, a Protestant reader might say he definitely became a better man and closer to God. And yet him trying to earn his salvation and Ustina's salvation misses the point of the cross. And therefore, I think he's a great person. And yet they had this flawed belief. If you right? think that... Is the book a failure? I think not. Okay. No, okay. because and and I think uh, to to take it one step further, and then I'll circle back to that question. If yeah, you're a sorry. secular reader, you might read Loris and think, "What a fascinating glimpse into medieval culture and the medieval mind." Mm-hmm. And certainly that because all, everything except for his healing miracles can be explained psychologically, not just spiritually. Right. Right. You don't, he doesn't have to be right. He could just have some psychological guilt complex. And, and that remains like a very psychologically compelling story, whether you accept the terms spiritually of the novel or not, then you still have to wrestle with the, with the question of his miracles, which could be explained away by magical realism. It's just like a technique on the part, on the part of the author to express the medieval worldview. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and remains a great novel. Um, and I think that being able to write like that as a person of faith, to be able to write a story so tellingly true that it gives the loopholes necessary for people who don't have faith to still see it on their terms and, and, and interact with the novel honestly mm-hmm. is hard to do. Mm-hmm. And, and it like that's what makes some, something like Loris or the great Catholic novels, they're not propaganda. Right. 
They're not trying to convert us. They're just telling a great story. And you read it differently depending on where you're coming from with your with your faith. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about this, David? Because I think you're asking a really good question. If you're, does the book fail at any point in time because it comes on so strong from its theological perspective? What are your thoughts? No, I don't think it fails. I think that's kind of, I mean, in a way, like it's the terms of the book, but it makes it when it raises the question of Ustina's salvation so consistently and, and, and so much of the poignancy of the novel and the pathos of the novel comes from us as readers feeling fear for her salvation because he feels it, you know, like to, to sort of not resolve that. It's weird because when you read it, you kind of implicitly know it's not a resolvable question and were it to be resolved, it would, it would, as you said, put the novelist in a strange role, a godlike position. So it's not really resolvable. But, but what I, what I'm sometimes as I was reading it, I kept thinking, does Vodolashkin want it to be as if symbolically, sh- what's her name? The, the girl at the end? Ustina. Oh, the, oh Anastasia. Anastasia. Yep, yeah, Anastasia. I should really know that. Yep. My niece's name. Um, I should have remembered that. Does he want us to think of her as symbolically the, the return of Ustina and symbolic of her redemption? and salvation, if you will, because of his sanctification and the way he interacts with her. So is his sanctification, is his movement towards theosis, which ultimately results in him protecting uh, protecting her and helping her give birth to this child, is that meant to be representative of Ustina's salvation? He As you say, there is the mystery there. But when things come full circle like that, you know, there's usually, it's usually more than just plot point period, if you will. That's what I call those. When Mm -hmm. things are circular and it's just about the plot, it's just a plot point period, right? It's just the end of the sentence that you're trying to create by returning back to the beginning of the sentence with your plot. It's more than that, though, Mm. when it becomes thematic and it becomes richer than just circling back to the plot. So that gets me thinking about what is, is is it meant to be symbolic of this other question that he has raised that isn't going to be answered in any other way? When I was reading it, in fact, the thing that I'm constantly looking out for is, is it possible that she is Ustina coming back almost like an angel would appear to somebody? You know, I think he sort of Mm. tries to get you to think about the whether certain characters in this book are actually humans. <laughs> um, I don't, or, or let me rephrase that. I found myself thinking a lot, wondering if he was doing that when I was reading the book. But what do you think of this, like of the relationship between, I'll just put it this way, between Ustina and Anastasia, Anastasia? Yeah. Oh, that was I rambling, that, sorry. No, not at all. I think that you're, asking such good questions because I I had actually never thought of her being some kind of like manifestation of Usina. Um, I don't want to say reincarnation, but, but yeah, I was thinking like fulfillment. Just, I don't even know how to f- say what I'm thinking. Like, 
Right. Well, it's and it, it's a mis, it's a mystery. I really like what you said about the plot point period because what I love about the ending of this book and what makes it to me not at all contrived is the fact that the ending is a full circle eschatological ending like it is fundamentally christian but it raises more questions than it answers mm. and that i love that that it's the right ending like you're kind of like okay you could see it as pre- predictable but if you start as you're bringing up start thinking about it then and just dwelling on it what does that mean that that his life ended as his journey to sainthood began with this redemptive moment, it actually raises all of these very fascinating questions about naming and time Mm -hmm. and theology and salvation that were part of the novel. Everything was layered upon those questions over and over again. Even have, as he's as he's getting older and he starts losing the, the forward moving thread of time and time begins to feel circular to him more and more and more. And and then and then his life ends in this like full circle moment. It I mean it's beautiful on a literary level and on a symbolic level, but it actually deepens the mystery of the novel. It doesn't tie it off because mm-hmm. It doesn't answer those, those, it doesn't attempt to, to answer the biggest question of the novel, which is, was Arseni's participation in Usina's salvation a legitimate way to, le- to live his life? Mm. Like, and, and that is a, that's a question all the readers are, that we readers are, have mm. to wrestle with throughout the whole novel. And the novel doesn't tell us in the spiritual realm, yes, he did the right thing or no, he missed grace or he just died and was dead. Right. Like there's, right. <laughs> like there's and everything was just because he was a medieval Russian Orthodox. Everything was just nurture. Everything was just the world he lived in, and he was a psychologically compelling and interesting human being. The novel works for all of those interpretations and many Mm -hmm. more. Do you think there is a point at which he stops living the way he's living uh, out of guilt? Like, he's living away the way that he's living because he wants to ensure Ustina's salvation, which is tied to his guilt about his behavior towards mm-hmm. her and his participation in her death and the, and the child's death. So is there a point at which the guilt stops being the driving force of his, of his right. life? Yeah, I think that, again, that's one of those, if you're reading the novel purely psychologically, then that is a really interesting question. Um, and when, you know, when is it just kind of like habit? When is it a, a death wish? When is it, like, you can explain this. You can sit back in your, you know, psychoanalyst's chair and read the whole novel entirely from that mm-hmm. perspective. And it's like a fascinating novel that actually works on a literary right. level. I think on the more, for for those of us who who do think about it more spiritually and think that it's mm-hmm. real, then the question of when shame and guilt actually make a, a 
like when they mingle with, with like true healing repentance, I don't know. (laughs) I wish I knew. I wish I knew when I was feeling guilty. I wish I knew when I was truly repentant Mm -hmm. of my sin and my soul was being healed because guilt and shame can be so wounding, but repentance is the only, and forgiveness are the only things that can heal us on a spiritual level. And, and so I think that that is part of the journey of Arsini's life is, is making, is, is when, when does shame make that holy transformation into repentance that is healing for him and even, and potentially for her. And I, I think that my favorite thing, I was trying to put this into words this morning, I was laying in bed before I got up. I'm like, what do I love so, so much about this novel? There's you, many, you many did things. promise that you would eventually say this at the beginning of the episode. That, <laughs> I, I did. Um, <laughs> is I um, I love this novel because it is the story of a man who committed who commits great sin and is unworthy of sainthood and yet becomes a saint, which is I guess all of our journeys, mine, yours, everybody's. Um, and and also it's somebody who became a saint through not just like vague, disconnected air quote love for mankind but a great sacrificial courageous love for a particular person and that is the thing that saves him and it's his love not just for people not just for mankind he does develop that and have that right he goes out and he lays hands on people and he sees but he doesn't start that way people yeah. No, he does it for her. And and through his love for her, his love becomes through that like eros, it becomes this like divinely transformative love for the whole world. But it begins particularly. And I I just I like really believe that. That's why I love Harry Potter. That's the same thing for Harry, right? That's his salvation is his love for his friends. And then that becomes what saves him from becoming Voldemort. And like that I see in this novel too, this like what is so amazing about love is that we are called to love everybody, right? But that's too vague. Like I, and how many people become monsters because they're trying to love the whole world instead of just like loving their family? Yeah, it's why we the whole world and, right now talks about changing the world, but really what we need to worry about is changing right. ourselves and being participating yes. in our communities. Repenting of our sins and loving my husband, my kids, like my friends. And 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 then through as that love gets bigger and deeper then maybe I'm equipped to love my neighbor as in, in the abstract. Mm. And, and that is Loris's journey. That's what happens to him. And, and I just find that so compelling and so beautiful and so anchoring to mm. me when I'm trying to be a loving person, be like, love like him, love like that. That's my period. D- and stop. <laughs> yeah. DC talk should have done a song about Loris. <laughs> right. Love, love, love like Loris. 
Love LLL. Like you should get that tat- tattooed on you. Um, so I have too many literary tattoos. Now I'm getting Tim Shell <laughs> and all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure we're going to get lots of questions. So I'm not really sure where I want to go to end this episode because I want to see where people, what the things that people want to hear us answer, the gaps that we need to fill. Go ahead. What were we going to say? I want to ask you, like your your experience with reading it. Like, did by the time you got to the end, did any of the questions that were raised at the beginning of these podcasts get resolved for you, or did you kind of like remain ambivalent? Um. No, I'm not ambivalent. <laughs> That's like, to, is my review ambivalent or not ambivalent? Because if those are my two options, then both of them sound a little bit cynical. Well, name your own, name uh, your own um, option. This hasn't, this wasn't your favorite no, book as we've uh, been reading it. And so as we've, as we've gotten deeper into it and read it together, I'm just wondering, ha- has that shifted or remained the same for you? I really like the last 50 pages of this book. And I really like the section that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember if you were, if this mm-hmm. was one with you or if it was with Tim, but the one with, we're kind of, the yeah, with Ambrosio on, and all that. When he, yeah. Which, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I know not everybody likes. I thought the last 50 pages are really, I think they get so particular, as you said, when he begins to live in the cave, he lives in the monastery and then he lives in the cave and you begin to sense the end of the journey. And so the stakes of the book sort of heat up a little bit. The uh, pace of the book begins to sort of normalize, to use a word that I I don't really mean like it gets normal. I just mean like it kind of levels out. And mm-hmm. there's a lot Agreed. of parts of the book where the it can feel a little episodic. And the episodicness, just from a storytelling perspective, you can be like, okay, so where are we going here? And you know, like you're going to get somewhere mm-hmm. and you know it's in, it's it's towards the you know, the end towards which his wanderings are headed. And I don't mean the location. I mean like Ustina and his salvation. The yeah. telos, right. Um, <laughs> right. But the, the, the end of it gets, there's a real, there's a real crispness to it. I don't really know how else to put it. There's a, there's a nice pace to it. And I really enjoyed that. And you know how there's like certain things in storytelling that I really like and for better or worse. And those are just things like, those are the parts of the book that really, I really have a lot of, I really liked. In fact, I flew. I flew. I flied. I flew through the last fifty or so pages. It it felt like it felt like um, what I how I sometimes will read fifty pages of like Lonesome Dove or something. And a lot of times, Lonesome mm-hmm. Dove or a book like that will have uh, McCormick, McCormick McCarthy's like this. He'll have these really readable page turnery sections, which actually are the least amount of action in the story. Because it's about like the characters, and you realize you're getting to a, an, an inflection point in the life of these characters, and the author mm-hmm. like has this energy, or it's like to to use a Larry McMurtry, a lonesome dove, or Cormac McCarthy metaphor: the cowboy is riding the horse through the desert, and the horse begins to smell the water from like fifty miles away, and the horse starts acting like or cattle on the cattle drive they start to sense the waters there and i think 
sometimes an author can do that too. They get really confident. They get really, they get a firm grasp of where they're headed. And a lot of times this happens in revision, but as a reader, it feels like there's this pace to it. And the author is smelling the water that they need to get to. Just go with me on hmm. this mixed, mixed and convoluted metaphor. But as readers, I think it feels a little bit like you're the cattle on this drive and you're beginning to smell the water too. And that the pace on that is a, like it becomes an efficiency to the pace and you get brought along and you just kind of keep turning the water because you're thirsty. You keep turning the pages because you're thirsty. And uh, that's how I think the last 50 pages of this book go. And then you get to the end hmm. and it's very satisfying because you do get the callbacks. Like I tend to be very conflicted about endings that are satisfying because sometimes I feel like contrived is a, is a word that people will use um, that I sometimes agree with and sometimes don't. But then he gets, as we said earlier, he gets to the end and he gives you the satisfying stuff and then he says, as you, as you said, oh, but also. And I think a lot of the best books do that. And so you get to the water and you get to drink the water and you get to be satisfied and satiated. But then it's like you're at the watering hole and you're a herd of cattle and you are ready to rest. But then some scent comes across the wind and you're like, What's that scent? Or maybe you're like a lion or something. I don't know. And there's the scent of something else. And, and it's like the next novel could be the the lion or the cattle following the scent to the next place. And he so he drops that sense of a scent at the end right as he has given you a chance to drink at the well. Again, very convoluted metaphor. But I think that also is something like you feel like you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. And it's a little writerly, you know, it's one of those things that writers maybe geek out over. But I think it's, I think it's the kind of thing where a question is raised in a satisfying way because you have been given the water to drink. So now you can be given a new question. If you're given too many Mm -hmm. questions at the end when other questions haven't been answered, then you're just asking your, you're just asking your readers to walk across another desert because they're, and like assuming they're going to be okay with it. It's like only a glutton for punishment is going to willingly do that, right? So when the Mm -hmm. author gives you something that is satisfying, then he can ask you to to indulge with him, if if you will, on a new mystery. And I think he is very aware, Vadalashkin is, of the experience of reading this book. I think he is self-aware about what it's like for the reader. And so he gives you the satisfaction before giving you the new mystery. Um, and I think, I think that he is attentive to his readers throughout. Even when, mm-hmm. even when I felt like it's a little episodic, it's a little bit, it's feeling a little dry. It's feeling like I'm maybe in the middle of the desert right now. <laughs> the he, I still, I never felt like he didn't care about me as a reader. You know, mm-hmm. so right. Yeah. Right. Agreed. He's never just trying to look smart or torment us or string us along. And a lot like of everything people comes. Do that. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, there's a temptation when you're an author to either try to do something new or trying to be smarter than your reader um, and let your reader know that. And Vodolashkin is a thinking person's author. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, he trusts us and he... And he gives us, he gives us a great story, Mm -hmm. makes us work for it a little bit, but 
it's, it is, I mean, I think on a literary level, it's massively satisfying. Um, and then I also just think it's true. Um, and, and that makes it even more satisfying to me because so so few people tell a story from, from the kind of perspective that I like mm-hmm. this, that I just think is true. So <laughs> I just love that a lot. Um, okay. You now have three minutes to tell us what you think Tim would say. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking, I really wish that Tim was yeah. here because the beckon, we are two Orthodox the people call talking of, about uh, bagpipes and right. kilts. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but we're two Orthodox people talking about an yeah. Orthodox book with a very Orthodox mm. ending. And so I really want to hear his perspective. We'll have to start the QA, um, <laughs> Q&A yeah. episode with that. Somebody ask that on the Q&A. <laughs> so somebody ask that on the Q&A. And then I'd love to hear even from, from yeah. our listeners, feel free to post your comments. Like if I had been on the podcast talking to David and Heidi, this is yeah. what I would have said. This is like, what I, I was I'm, shouting I'm at my car, right, my, my, my phone right. or whatever. And this is why you need multiple perspectives in a community of readers, especially in a book like this that raises so many questions that matter. Yeah. And, and so I read this and I think like, well done, good and faithful servant. Like, and, and, and may my eschatological Christian ending, my, my real life ending probably isn't going to look like this, but may my, I hope when I stand before God, that my ending as my, my telos, my purpose, my life as a Christian um, feels like this. What's um, the, what's so, the prayer? Yeah. Um, uh, for a good and um, for good a good and, and saving yeah, end. Like, there's this thing that the church fathers will talk about a lot. You'll see it a lot in Orthodox writers in general, but like the idea of a good death, um, yeah. which is also something that comes up in a lot of literature. But um, right, patient. What is it? Yeah, I mean, in the prayers, I was just at vespers last night. But of course, on the spot, I can't right, think yeah. about it. I can't think of it. But yeah. um, well, he even there's yeah, that conversation good, where yeah. he's talking to somebody. He's Painless, blameless, and yes. peaceful. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And and a good defense before the judgment seat of God. We pray this at every mm. Vespers. Um and and that like that is like that's the prayer of death, right? Like to have a good death and to have a, a defense before when when we are when there is nothing but us and our and our sins and and we we finally see ourselves for who we really are with no excuses to have a good defense and to have the mediate the mediation of Christ interceding for us that's yeah. awesome he has that that really poignant moment where he's someone comes to him for healing or maybe it says that a couple people do and he realizes he can't heal them and he says something like I don't know exactly how it goes, but what you you don't fear death, you fear pain or something like that. And so he's trying to help mm. people have, you know, what he is trying to help people have good deaths as well as mm-hmm. maintain stay alive. So, well, there's a lot more to talk about. Um, we'll get to as much as we can in the Q and A next week. Again, the uh, thread will be on Facebook the Close Reads Facebook group, you can leave a comment in the, the Substack post um, for um, this episode. And then also you can email uh, questions to me, david at goldberrybooks.com. Any final thoughts? I think just, we we talked a lot about Arseni, rightly so. That's what the whole book is about. Um, and his 
the, I really loved, like it stood out to me a lot this time in reading it that he was able to, to participate um, and Ambrosio's salvation as well through receiving the name Ambrosi as a monk that I don't, I don't, I don't know that I had really dwelled on that the, because I think in, in times of reading it before, again, this will be my third time, but in times of reading it before I had it made much of that in my head because I was just so eager to get to the end and find out what happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, um, or get to it again. Right. Like, yeah. Um, but it's, you know, we, we talked about last time the purpose of Ambrosio and his friendship. And again, I think in this section, and I didn't want to say it last week because it would be a spoiler, but I wanted to remember to bring it up this time that one of the purposes, again, I think was was to add another layer to the question of naming and, and receiving Ambrosi as his name as a monk um, and his identity as a monk, his spiritual identity. He gets then to participate not only in Ustina's salvation, but also in his friends. And there's another particular love there that happens sure. that, that unites him with his friend beyond the veil of death. And, and, and becomes a comfort to him as well as a path of salvation to more people. And that layering of love is through taking on the identity of others is just really moving to me. I just really think it's beautiful. Well, that's my final. Thought. We are going to do, uh, we are on the, we are on the Russian corridor here on close reads because up next we're going to do a book that takes place in Russia, although it is written by an American. It's going to be Amor Tolls, A Gentleman in Moscow. So that we're going to do that, start that in two weeks. And our friend Ian Andrews from the Center for Lit, who's been on a couple things here, he's been he was in the Lord of the Rings episodes we did last year. He's going to be joining Heidi and I for that. Um, and so, yeah, That'll it's going to be, be a great fun. time. So we're going to have a reading schedule up for that as well. I know a lot of you love that book, so I think. A much more lighthearted oh, yeah. book for those of you who need, who, those of you who are like, I don't know if I'm ready for more Russian literature. We can debate how Russian the book is in yeah, general. I would say not very. It's definitely, a lot, <laughs> it's definitely a lot lighter than yeah. Morris. If anything, so. it's more like, well, we'll talk yeah. about it later. A lot, a lot of wine talk yeah. in that book though. Um, I know, can't wait. So yeah, Heidi's going to do a whole lecture on, on European wines for us uh, for one episode. It's just going to be wine talk. That's not true, <laughs> yeah, but that's an exciting proposition. <laughs> um, okay, well, Heidi, thanks so much. Uh, everybody, uh, you know, just imagine Tim high atop a mountain, wearing a kilt, playing the bagpipes. Playing the bagpipes. And uh, in, in between... Heather, in be- drinking some in between, scotch. In between, um, I don't know, when you're playing a bagpipe, what is it? what do you call it when you're blowing into the bagpipes in between playing the bagpipes i don't know i'm sure there's a name uh i'm sure there's a verb for that um loudly loudly saying um shakespearean um lines (laughs) (laughs) shakespeare's words unto the heather and the uh and the hills and his wife who probably is sitting there chatting with a a wee lad who has problems because he has had to play <laughs> he's had to play Iago one too many times I wondered where
where you were going with that and you nailed it. Good job. All right, well, for Tim, who is off doing that, and for Heidi White, who is not, and for me, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs> <laughs>